So the sermon today is called Steps to Grace, and it's really going to be steps to sin to begin with, and then we're going to be looking at steps to grace. But firstly, let's just review where we went last week. Okay, this is, I'm not going to review all of this because it was a very chaotic story, the story of David. And I kind of, also another thing that sort of jumped out to me from the children's story was all the things that we often associate with David and then all the things that we sort of forget about David. And last week we talked about how he went to Saul holding Goliath's head um, in his hand and all the sort of the nasty details that often we skim over. And today we're going to be kind of going deep into one of those um, stories as well. And David's life was truly a roller coaster. He had great highs and he had lots of really bad lows. And at the very bottom of that experience down here, we saw David last week in a position where his, his country, his nation had kicked him out. The Philistines that had abandoned him, um, he went back to his home and his city had been destroyed. He had lost his, um, his family been taken off and then his own men turned on him and he had nothing else but he strengthened himself in the Lord. And from that, God took him and he rose to the position of king over all of Israel. And that's where we got up to last, last week. But at the end of our little diagram, you see it doesn't keep going up, but it sort of has a bit of a downwards at the end. And that's where we're heading today. So here we have steps to grace, and we're going to be examining the process by which um, Satan overcame Dan- David, and then the process of him coming out. And to begin with, we're going to look at his weakness. Now, if you remember, when Samuel came to David when he was just a boy and he was looking to anoint the next king, he gave these words. He said, but the Lord said, this is what God said, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on his height or of his statue because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And this is the reason that God chose David to be king. Because he might, have had, he might have been a great warrior. He might have, as it says, he was handsome and all these other descriptions it gives David. But the reason that God chose him was not for any of those, but it was because of his heart. And you read through the story and um, we see that later on God says, I've called David a man after my own heart. And one of the reasons why he was a person after God's heart is because of this, this passionate, deep relationship that he had with God. And this is really what we zoomed in on last week. In Psalm 119, he, wrote, he writes the longest chapter in the Bible, and basically the entire psalm is about David's passion for Scripture. He, he talks about his great love of, of, of the Bible, of God's law, of his commands, and we have things such as in verse 103, he says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Is that the way that we view scripture? Is it like sweeter than honey? Another thing he says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. There is something about David's love for, for scripture that was that must have been um, contagious, and it was the source of inspiration for all of these great um, poems and songs that, that he came up with. But there's one passage that, of all the scripture, would have, should have been something that David should have been paying extra special attention to. Um, and let's go and find that in Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 14. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. 
Now, as we've seen so far as we've been going through the story, it doesn't appear to be God's will that Israel would choose a king. But even though it wasn't God's will, back in Deuteronomy, God foresaw that they were going to choose a king, and he said, in the case that you do choose a king, these are some instructions for that king. And so David, he must have been familiar with this passage. You would think that of all scripture, God's instructions for a king would have been something that the young boy who was anointed king would have paid extra special time to focus on and to meditate on. And let's look at what those instructions were. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14, it says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, God says, You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So in other words, God is saying, you can have a king, but make sure it's the one that I choose. And David was the one that God chose. Verse 16. Some more instructions. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. So horses means a big army, and then you could come to trust in that army instead of trusting in God. We go down, verse 17. And he's And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. So here God was instructing the kings to be be people of great devotion to scripture. And we see that David was that sort of a person. But in that scripture that he was supposed to be so devoted to, we see this specific instruction that says, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself. Let's go, um, actually, no, just stay there. Um, so this, we have this instruction, don't acquire many wives for yourselves. Now, do you remember who the first wife of David was? It was Saul's daughter, Michael. However, when David had to flee as a fugitive, um, Michael was given to another, another person, another husband. So David is, is out in the wilderness. His wife has been married off to someone else. And then there's the whole story with Abigail. And, and David thinks, you know what? Maybe I'm going to take Abigail, whose husband has recently died, as my wife. But he doesn't stay there. David seems to neglect this instruction that God has given him and he marries Abigail, Ahinoam, Maacah, Haggith, Abital, Ithraim, and the story continues. And it's amazing how someone can be so devoted and have such integrity in the majority of Scripture, and yet on a very, what he might have considered a small point, be so easy to neglect it. But what happens when we neglect something that God has revealed to us is it builds up a bit of a weakness in our lives. And that's what we see happening in the story of David. David develops this, this weakness for women. And we find this in many of the characters throughout, throughout Scripture. Now, to add to this weakness, we find along comes a little temptation. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 to 2. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Verse 1 to 2. 
Now, we're going to be spending most of our time in this passage here, and other verses outside of this, most of them will be on the screen, apart from a few. So um, keep this part marked in your Bible. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, it says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. So here we see this situation where all of Israel is back at war. But for some reason, there's someone who's not there. And that is King David. Now, maybe some of his his generals suggested that he, it's safer if I have the king back in the, in the confines of, the, of the, um, the palace and to stay safe from the battle. We don't really know what took place, but what we see is most of Israel's out doing the hard work at, in the battle, but David is at home taking it easy. And he goes up on his roof and he sees this beautiful woman. Now, throughout David's experience, when we saw that big graph, Basically, the majority of the story of David shows David as a fugitive. He's fleeing from his life. He has people trying to kill him. He has spears being thrown at his head. And during all this time, David is basically in survival mode. And a lot of the Psalms spring forth out of this this survival David. And as a result of this, David, that's what really led David into this deep dependence of God. And it's amazing that when we see David fleeing for his life, we see him in in his most faithful, having his most faithful experiences. David's integrity is at a high point when he's most in danger. However, here we see David in a very different situation. Here we see David in, uh, he's comfortable, he's at ease, he's secure, he's safe. And this is when temptation strikes for him. And in our own lives, we live in Australia and Every time I travel any, to any other country, I always realize just how good we have it in Australia. We're one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Um, we have fresh air. A lot of things are fantastic and easy and comfortable and safe in this country. Now, that doesn't neglect all the, the hard, difficult times that we experience as well. But often we find ourselves, especially in countries like Australia, in positions of, of wealth and positions of ease. And the danger that I really... The lesson that I see coming out so far from the story of David is that sometimes it's when we're most comfortable and most at ease when we are most vulnerable to temptation. In the book Patriarchs and Prophets, describing the situation, it says, It was now while he was at ease and unguarded that the tempter seized the opportunity to to occupy his mind. When in ease and self-security he let go his hold upon God, David yielded to Satan and brought upon his soul the stain of guilt. And so, often when we have those times of struggle, maybe they're times to thank God and praise God that those things are leading us into a deeper dependence of Him and even safeguarding us from from temptation. Okay, so, he he developed this weakness for women. He found himself in this, this this place of temptation. The next thing that happened was the sinful desire began to emerge in his mind and in his heart. And I want to take you to a verse in James chapter 1. And I love this verse because it really 
outlines the process of temptation and the process of from desire through to action. It says, Each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And I like the birth, the childbearing imagery that we see in this verses in here. When a child is born, that child does not begin its existence the day that it is born, but it began its existence six month, I mean nine months earlier in its, in its mother. Um, and here we see, this is how the book of James is describing the process of sin. When we actually commit that sinful action, that's not the time when sin begins, but rather that sin has been previously growing in the, in, inside the person, in their minds and in their hearts. It's the desire that is, is springing up, and eventually that gives birth to the sinful action. We see Matthew, uh, Jesus in the book of Matthew say something quite similar. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, he says, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The wrongdoing doesn't begin with the doing, but it begins with the, the thinking and the desires in our heart. And so that's where the, that's where the battle needs to wage in, in our lives. We need to be fighting temptation right back at the very beginning and right back when temptation faces us and the desire begins in our hearts. But let's go to Second Samuel. David does not fight this desire, but rather... David, when he sees this temptation, he nurtures that desire. He nurtures that lust, and pretty soon it starts to grow in his life. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 3. It says, And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So here we see... David is, is nurturing this desire, and pretty soon the sinful desire gives birth to the sinful action. Verse 4 says, So David sent messages and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, then she returned to her house. I've got a picture here on, for you on the screen here. This here is a fishing lure. And I want you to imagine that you are a fish, okay? Now, if you are a fish, a hook, a fisherman's hook is probably the worst possible thing that could happen to you, okay? That could be in your mouth, okay? Apart from maybe a, a bigger shark or something that might come along and, and take, take you, um, destroy you. But a hook, a fisherman hook, fisherman's hook for a fish is the worst possible thing. It brings destruction, and especially if it's a hungry fisherman, it brings an end to its, its life. But what the fisherman does is the fisherman takes that thing that is the worst for the fish and makes it look like it's the best thing for that fish. And it dresses it up. It makes it look like a fish. Sometimes they make it so it, it swims in the water. It's colorful. Maybe if it's alive, it has live bait on there, so it smells good. It's, it's, it's appealing to the senses. And here we... And, and, and the fish is swimming in there, and it sees this thing that looks so desirable and so appealing, and yet it's actually 
the very worst thing for, for the fish. And in fact, I like this because this is really a good illustration of every temptation that we face in our life. We think of the Garden of Eden, Adam and, and Eve. There's this fruit on the, tree, on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, if you eat from that, you will die. And history has shown the results of eating from that fruit. Every single bad thing in our whole earth has come as a result of eating that fruit. That fruit was the very worst possible thing for Adam and Eve. But what did Satan do? He dresses it up. And he makes the very worst thing look like the very best thing, and he makes it smell nice, and he, and he makes it desirable. It's, it's desirable for, for, for becoming wise, and he makes it so appealing to tempt them, um, Adam and Eve to take the thing that is actually the very worst for them. But the problem is, is pretty soon after you fall into Satan's temptations, you realize that there's really a hook in, inside the thing that he's been luring you, luring you into. And that's what we find with David. Along comes, oh, we'll read verse, again verse 4. So David sent messages, sorry, verse 5. Verse 5, it says, And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, what do you think this did to the mind of, of, of David? And it's really crazy to just, just think of, the, of what's taking place here. Here we have Uriah. Now, Uriah was one of David's mighty men. If you read later in, in 2 Samuel, we see this list, and it calls them the 30. And these were David's best warriors. These were people who, in some of the descriptions, there would be literally a whole army chasing the Israelites, and they would all turn around and flee. And one of these men, in some of these descriptions, would turn around, face this, this army, and would basically destroy the, own, the whole army by themselves. And it speaks of some of the stories where they would go back to these people and they would literally pry their fingers off the sword because they were just working so intensely um, and for so long in this battle to defeat the enemy. And Uriah was one of these people from the, his mighty men, from this elite group of soldiers. So he's off in the battlefront. He's risking his life for the kingdom. And how would it look if suddenly everyone realized that while he was doing that, David was getting up to mischief with his wife. And so David goes from David goes from sinful action to needing to cover up. And this is when things get especially um, ugly. David goes into a panic and, he's, and, he, and his mind, you can just imagine his mind is just racing through the scenarios. What's going to happen? The whole army's going to, maybe the people will turn against me. They're going to, my my great reputation is going to be destroyed. And this thing that he thought was going to be done so, in so much secret suddenly is, is absolutely going to be found out. And so he starts desperately trying to put together a plan. And the first plan is he gets Uriah and he sends a message off to Uriah in the, who's over in the, in the battle and he, and he says, sends a job, send Uriah back to me and I've got something to share with him. And so Uriah makes this journey back to the king. Now, the distance between these places was a bit over 60 kilometers. So this wasn't just a, a little journey around the corner, but this is like a long journey. And, and David is not just summoning, because they had messengers that ran back and forth, but David is summoning one of his elite warriors. So this must be a very important message that David has for Uriah. And you can just imagine Uriah like 
doing his best to get there as quickly as possible, and he arrives in David's in, in, in his palace, and he says, I'm, I'm here, I'm ready. What, what's the message? And David has the most um, trivial things to talk about with him. He just basically says, oh, um, how's it going? Um, uh, what, what's happening over in, in the battle? Is, is Joab okay? And you can just imagine um, Uriah just being so confused by the situation. Why did David send me here to just ask the same thing that the messengers could have told him? But... Um, and then David says, all right, um, go home and spend the night at home and here's a present and yeah, have, have a good night. And so Uriah is just in this state of confusion and David is just desperately hoping, hoping that this whole scenario will, will result in a big cover-up where Uriah is seen to be the father instead of himself. But Uriah, instead of going and spending the night with his wife, he goes and sleeps at the door because he says, how can I go home and, and, and be at home while all the rest of the army are away from their families and they're off um, in the battle. And again, we see this awesome contrast between the incredible integrity of Uriah, who, and when he thinks about the other soldiers out in the battle, he's, he's just so sympathetic and, and he, he's so, he's so, his, his mind's just with them compared to David, who was just... Um, doing the complete opposite of a life of integrity. And so that doesn't work. And David hears, gets, um, hears about this. He sends for him again. He has this party. And he's like, all right, let's make him drunk. And again, this doesn't work. And eventually, David has to send him on his way. And David is beginning to become desperate. The need to cover up his sin is, is growing. And eventually, he goes to new depths in the experience of David. Let's read 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 14 through to 15. It says, In the morning David wrote a letter to Job and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Here we have David sending a man who is bearing the message and bearing a letter which is in fact his own death warrant. And the story, the story continues, it goes there. And remember, this is, and, and what happens is, is Joab sends some of the soldiers close, close to the wall of, of the city they're besieging. But it's, it's really a completely unnecessary um, thing to do because they're besieging the city. When they would besiege a city, they would surround it and they would cut it off from people being able to escape and come in because it was really dangerous to, to take on a city just with go straight into the walls because they had their archers up there and it was really well defended. So they would just basically cut it off until the people would either starve to death or surrender. So that's what is happening. But Joab, he gets this message and he sends Uriah and some of the other men right close to the wall and the archers get them and a whole bunch of them die. And so here we see David becomes responsible not only for the death of Uriah, but also for the death of a bunch of soldiers who did this completely unnecessary thing. And to top it all off, at the end of it, David then, in a, in a kind of pretense to show how, um, how um, I guess in an act of respect for Uriah, his great warrior, he takes his wife and he, and he marries her at the end. And, the, and, and David thinks that he has covered up um, the problem. 
And it's amazing the power that the desire to cover up has in causing us to compromise our integrity. David, remember, earlier on in the story when he's in the cave and King Saul comes in and this is his enemy, remember. King Saul was his, the one who was trying to kill him. And he knows that very easily he could kill Saul and very likely become exalted to the position of king. But yet he knew that that was God's anointed and with his integrity, he decided to withhold from killing Saul. However, when he gets himself in the depths of temptation and this desire to avoid embarrassment, this desire to cover up what he's done, he suddenly loses all sense of, of, of morals, all sense of integrity, all sense of faithfulness, and he organizes the execution of some of his best warriors. And the, what results from this is the next step going down to sin, and that is guilt. In Psalm 32, we find David describing this experience, and especially these two verses describe the guilt that David experienced in the depths of this, when, when he was, had concealed his sin, so he thought, but it was still eating him up inside. He says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Have you ever felt like that? When guilt is literally eating you up from the outside? From the, out, from the inside, I mean. From the outside, David appeared good. He was winning the war. The kingdom was going well. But little did everyone else know that there was a secret that was absolutely eating David up from the inside out. And we find David, and it's quite interesting that that from, also from outward appearances, David is having a great high in his life. He's on the throne. But really, this is one of the great depths of David's experience, when spiritually he was the most corrupt and the most distant from God. Why does the Bible describe this story? And I guess we sort of mentioned this again in the children's story a little bit, that God describes this because... The great men of the Bible are not perfect, they're not dissimilar to us, but they're people with very real shortcomings and weaknesses that God wants us to examine their lives and to learn the lessons that he has for us. And when we look at David, we each of us should see a little picture of ourselves. This is what David, King David, the man after God's own heart, this is what David is like when God is pushed out of the equation. And for us, this is what we're like as well, when God is pushed out of the equation. But, it gets, it improves. The story is going to come right back up into the, into the heights again. And along comes Nathan the prophet, and he tells this story. He comes into David's, into his court, and he says, David, in, in a certain city, there's two men. One of them, is very rich and has a very large number of flocks and herds, huge number of, of, of animals. And there's another man in that city who's very poor. And in fact, this other man only has one little lamb. And that lamb is so precious, to, well, was so precious to this person that he basically let it live in his house um, just like it was one of his children. He let this little lamb eat from his food. He let this little lamb drink from his cup. 
It was like a daughter to him. And it would lie in his arms and this man just loved this little lamb. However, the rich man, he had, there was a foreigner came into the city and he invited this foreigner over to his house and this, this rich man thought, well, I need to do the honorable thing and I'm going to, um, I'm going to feed this man. But he didn't want to take from his, his, his livestock and his big flock of sheep and goats. So he went and he stole the, the poor man's little lamb and he took it back and he, he, he killed that and he fed the man with that. And David, when he heard this, was absolutely filled with rage. Let's read what it says. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 5, through, 5 and 7. It says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Verse 7. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. What would that have done to the heart of David? Suddenly, all that guilt that was building up within him that he had so desperately tried to cover, suddenly turns into conviction. And grace, the steps to grace begin with conviction. But you might be thinking, what's the difference between conviction and guilt? Well, firstly, guilt is a result of what we tell ourselves. Conviction is a result of what God tells us. Guilt leads us away from God, whereas conviction leads you to Him. Guilt presents you with no solutions. Conviction presents you with a Savior. And guilt motivates us towards cover-up, but conviction motivates us to confession. And David, as his heart is is absolutely torn. He has spoken the strongest words of, conde- of condemnation into a situation that was absolutely nothing in comparison to what he had done. Not only had he taken a lamb, but, but he had taken a wife. And he had murdered multiple times over to cover that up. And there was nothing he could do. There was no excuses. And he simply says these words in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. David said to Nathan... I have sinned against the Lord. And he says nothing else. Before David was so eager to cover up, but now he he freely confesses. And if we want to receive grace, we need to also be led into, into confession, which is the next thing that we have here. If we want grace from God, we can't have a defensive stance against him. And we find that in, again, with the story of Adam and Eve, when they've taken from the fruit and they, they take this defensive stance. They try and cover themselves up. They try and hide in the garden. We're going to fix this ourselves. We don't need you, God. But the moment when they find grace is the moment when God, with his convicting voice, draws them out of the garden and they come out and they stand before that all-seeing eye in exactly the person that they are. And we need to be led into that experience of confession as well. And David makes no excuses. And that's an important thing as well. He could have said, the woman, she shouldn't have been bathing on that roof, or on that, in her courtyard or wherever it was. 
she did this. Or he could have said, uh, the, Amor- the Ammonites, they were the ones who shot the, the bows, not me. They're the ones who did this. But David doesn't do any of this. He simply stands before God exactly as he is. And the other thing David doesn't do is he doesn't make promises. He doesn't say, God, or, or Nathan, and God, I'll do better next time. I promise I won't do this again. He doesn't start bargaining with God. He simply stands before him in the sinful state that he finds himself in. But simply confessing our sins isn't enough. But, because he could have then confessed his sins and then sought a solution in himself, but instead he confesses his sins and he seeks God's solution for his life. Turn with me to Psalm 51. Now, when we read the beginning of Psalm 51, it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. So here we see David recounting his experience of repentance and his experience of seeking God's solution. I'm going to read a few verses from here. In verse 1, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, he says, God purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquity. Here we see David desperately seeking a solution in the only one who has the solution when we find ourselves in these situations, in God. And the result is a surprising, instantaneous forgiveness that he finds. Go back with me to Second Samuel uh, chapter 12. Second Samuel chapter 12, and we're in verse 13. And I want you just to take note of how instant and, and immediate the forgiveness is that God gives to David. It says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Remember what he was saying before when he was burdened with guilt? He said, when I concealed, covered my sins, he said, my bones were wasting away and my strength was dried up um, like, 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 um, like in the summer when, when water is dried up in the summer. He says, my strength was just sapped away. But here we see suddenly peace and acceptance and a right standing with God suddenly floods into David's experience. And I want you to jump across to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, here again we see David recounting this experience. And after he's experienced his forgiveness, he writes this. 
and this is going to touch on, we've read a couple of these verses already. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Verse 5, he says, But I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Here we have David experiencing the incredible, undeserved grace of God. However, forgiveness is not enough for David. Let's go back to, on the screen. We have Psalm 51, verse 10 and 11. This is just after, in the process of David pleading to God to, um, to, to find a solution for his sin. And he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. In the process of this, what is it that David is longing for? He's longing for forgiveness, but he's also longing for a restoration of a right stand, of a of a relationship with God. And there is no more intimate relationship we can have with God than the Holy Spirit, who is God, living and dwelling in our hearts. We find very similar words in Acts chapter two, where Peter is preaching and the audience is 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 struck with this huge sense of conviction. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for two things. The forgiveness of your sins, and number two, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance is those first three steps. Conviction, when we feel sorry for sin, we confess our sin, we turn around and we seek God's solution. That's repentance. But when we do that, we get two gifts. We get forgiveness Forgiveness deals with our sins of the past. It, it washes us clean. It makes us right with God. But we also get a new relationship with God. The Holy Spirit lives in our life. And when we receive that um, re- new relationship with God, we don't just have a solution for our past, but we also receive strength to help us live a transformed life in the future. And we see David here. He went from weakness right down to the greatest depths in his life, in his experience. But God took him and he brought him right back up to a position of moral strength. And from the beginning, from weakness right through to strength, we see the love of God shining through like a bright shining sun all the way through, gently bringing David back towards himself. Father in heaven, we, we are here before you today just as we are. We recognize that when we look at the story of David and we see this, this story of great um, of, of, of a disobedience, of sin, of wickedness, of, of um, being led away by his own desires and passions and being caught in, in the temptations of Satan. Lord, when we look at this, we see um, ourselves reflected in David's experience. And Father, we acknowledge that without you, we are... Um, we are lost in our sins and our transgressions, Father. And so we seek your forgiveness. We seek that you will um, give us your Holy Spirit into our lives, create in us that new heart, Father. Give us the strength to 
to live out the Christian life this week, Lord, not trusting in ourselves, but trusting wholly in, in you, Lord. And we thank you for your unconditional, um, free gift of grace and salvation, which we know was, is free to us, Lord, but it's because it was expensive to you. And we thank you for what you did for us on the cross. And Lord, may your sacrifice motivate us to pursue you with everything we have. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.